This, 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 this is K-U-T. K-U-T. K-U-T, Austin. Stop. This is KUT Weekend for the fourth weekend of November 2017. Thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. Austin's largest school district tries to address racial disparities in education. Our gaps are deplorable, and I don't think we can hide any longer from that fact. What Thanksgiving is like for people still rebuilding from Hurricane Harvey. A person can only do so much at a time. So if we keep working at it, eventually we'll get it done. And the Trump administration considering a Texas professor to hold the second highest job at the Census Bureau. There are a lot of raised eyebrows at why he would be chosen for such a critical spot. Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. Throughout the Austin Independent School District, students of color are not doing as well academically as their white peers. KUT's Claire McInerney reports on how the AISD school board says it's trying to address the problem. Earlier this month, the AISD Board of Trustees had a long discussion about what they call the achievement gap. What this means is when you look at the test scores of all students, white ones score much higher. For example, when it comes to reading scores, 80% of white students passed that test in 2017. Half that many Latino students passed the same test, and only a third of black students did. Our percentages, our gaps are deplorable, and I don't think we can hide any longer from that fact. That's board member Ted Gordon. And we need to come together, whether we think this is one thing or another, to try to put our our, uh, perspectives together and make this thing change. The board discussed two solutions to addressing this achievement gap. First, how are schools supporting their Black students? The district has a specific plan for this group because the gap between Black students and their peers is the largest. It includes training teachers to learn the needs of and support their Black students. This plan also calls for teachers to monitor the progress of every Black child. For the second one, Superintendent Paul Cruz says they need to change the way teachers think. I I do think a significant piece is implicit bias and expectation level. So what's implicit bias? In a school setting, it's a teacher having a subconscious belief that a student from a certain income bracket or that looks a certain way can only achieve so much. Cruz says to combat the negative effects of that, teachers need to focus on one thing with their students. Expectation level. I do think that is that is significant when we look at student performance in any type of category. He says regardless of a student's background, teachers should have high expectations and push every student toward college or career goals. One example is making sure kids of color are considered for enrichment classes and extracurriculars. And Cruz says whether it's race, special education, or English learners, he wants AISD teachers to realize the challenges and learning styles of these groups. But it's recognizing that it's just different, it's not wrong. But that change will take time. Each year, the district hires 800 new teachers, which means starting the process all over again for about 13% of teachers each year. Claire McInerney, KUT News. to move into homes in a new master plan development out by Walter Long Lake in eastern Travis County. It's called Whisper Valley. 
And thanks to some green infrastructure, residents should see savings on their energy bills. KUT's Saida Hassan has a look. Eco-friendly development isn't a new concept in the Austin housing market, but building a home that includes these features is usually pretty costly. The homes in Whisper Valley all have green technology, but prices start in the low 200,000s. Douglas Gilliland is president of the developer Taurus of Texas. What we've done is make that technology available to the first-time home buyer. So uh, this type of lifestyle we're finding is, is very much in demand. People that can live efficiently, live in a healthy environment. All of the homes in Whisper Valley are zero energy capable. That means they're designed to produce just as much energy as they consume. Each house has a solar panel on the roof. Inside, a small heat pump regulates the temperature of the home. Gilliland shows us a model of one of these devices in the Whisper Valley office. He says it works sort of like a refrigerator. We're just separating the heat out of the air. And if it's the wintertime, we're pushing the heat into the house. If it's the summertime, we're pushing the heat down into the earth and we're bringing the coolness out of the earth. Ultimately, Gilliland says this technology will lower utility bills for residents. The project has gained the support of Travis County Commissioner Jeffrey Trevilian. He represents the growing part of the region that includes Whisper Valley. I think it just brings a lot of ideas together that historically have not been associated with East Austin or Eastern Travis County. Trevilian says he has yet to hear any pushback about the new development from longtime residents in the area, perhaps because of its emphasis on affordability. And he hopes the prices at Whisper Valley will open the door to home ownership for people who can't afford to buy in the Austin market. Within the city limits, the median home value is $327,000. We will also be talking about and working towards uh, programs that make it possible for teachers, uh, for public employees, employees, and and for others to be able to uh, live in the community as well. So far, more than 25 homes have been sold in Whisper Valley. More are under construction. Ultimately, developers plan to build about 7,500 homes. Saida Hassan, KUT News. If you already live in one of the Austin neighborhoods with curbside composting, then you can put your Thanksgiving scraps out for pickup. But if you're not on that program yet, don't despair. KUT's Mose Bouchelle reports the city could expand to your neighborhood next year. The city program allows you to compost things you wouldn't normally, like turkey carcasses or pizza boxes. It added 38,000 customers in October, and the city budget provides money to add another 38,000 homes next year. Emily Chancellor is a spokesperson for Austin Resource Recovery. She says the city conducts studies to figure out where to expand composting service. Those could likely be places close to where curbside composting is already offered. Yeah, so our staff does look at um, how they can add customers in the most efficient way so that our trucks aren't driving all over. So um, we'll, we'll be, of course, um, putting out maps and notifications to customers probably in the spring of next year. Austin Resource Recovery has a goal of bringing curbside composting citywide by 2020. Though that would require more money from city council. Mose Bouchelle, KT News. So for most of us, this was just another Thanksgiving. We meet up with friends or family and eat and chill. But a lot of families living in two small southeast Texas towns hit hard by Hurricane Harvey are still trying to get their homes ready to move back in. Hurricane Harvey dropped more than 60 inches of rain in Orange County. In Vider, a town with 11,000 people, more than 2,000 of the 3,500 structures there 
were flooded in some way by the storm, more than half of them. That includes the parsonage where Vider's Methodist preacher John Mooney and his family live. Jill Amond, with a statewide news show produced out of KUT, the Texas Standard, went to Vider to check in with Pastor Mooney and other Southeast Texans finding it tough to rebuild after the storm. Almost three months after Harvey pummeled Vider, Texas in Orange County, Pastor John Mooney's home is still uninhabitable. He, along with a handful of volunteers and some of his congregation, have been working on the house day by day, week by week. Honestly, I know in this neighborhood, this house is a lot further along than your most houses, but there's a lot of houses just sitting around in shells, more or less, because they don't have the funds or the resources. I mean, there's a lot to like even get started. There you go. All right. All right, come on in. Sorry for a mess. Yeah, it's okay. It's, uh, Mooney, his wife Sharon, their two young sons and their two dogs have been staying in a donated 2,200 square foot camper parked next to their church. The Moonies make use of the church's large fellowship hall, mainly for their rambunctious boys, Austin, who's almost two, and Tony, who's three. At the end of the day, they even use the sinks in the fellowship hall's kitchen for the boys' bath time. They're trying to make the best of it, but their sons, especially Tony, are starting to get pretty homesick. It's gotten worse, you know, he's been like, I want to go to my home. And sometimes when I pick him up from school, he'll, uh, I'll say, hey guys, we're going home. And he he would get so excited and he's like, my home, my home's fixed. I said, oh, and I would just have to catch myself. Oh, no, baby, home's not fixed yet. We'll, we'll get it fixed, we'll get it fixed. Just a couple of miles up I-10 in neighboring Rose City, Luann Kleimeyer has been living in a tent under her carport for the past two months. She's not sure when her home will be fixed, so she's prepared to stay in her tent through the winter. Well, we have a heater and there's like two, four, six, about eight blankets. So it ain't too bad. I mean, you know, it ain't too bad. You just dress warmly, <laughs> sleep in long clothes. And where you see up in, there used to be a, there used to be a wall right there because there used to be a third bedroom. Most of the homes in Rose City, which isn't a city but a very small town in between Beaumont and Vider, are unlivable after Harvey. Trash and debris from gutted homes litter the roadsides. With a population of just a little over 500, Rose City's poverty rate is 9 percent. In Vider, it's 18 percent. A lot of people living in this area were already having a hard time before the storm hit. Local officials worry many people displaced by Harvey won't come back. And him across there, he lost everything. Kleinmeier plans on staying in Rose City and rebuilding. But she's finding it hard to afford the repairs. Like many of the people we talked to, she doesn't live in a floodplain and wasn't required to have flood insurance. She says she did get about $20,000 from FEMA, but that just scratched the surface for the kind of work that needs to be done on her home, which received more than three feet of water. Most of the gutting and repairs have so far been done by volunteer groups and her handyman. I guess it still really hasn't hit me, you know, about everything that's been lost. It's going to take a while to get all this back together. Long, long while. Okay. 
About a block down from Kleimeyer's house, retired couple Patricia and Linton Cowart are determined to salvage their home of almost 60 years. Well, it's been pretty taxing on me and my wife, but, uh, you know, if you're a godly person, he will not put any more on you than you can take care of. There are times when I had forgotten that, and uh, I felt like if I had one more thing on me, I believe I'd die. But uh, it, it's true, you know, and a person uh, can only do so much at a time. So if we keep working at it, eventually we'll get it done. Linton says he and his wife have gone through just about every hurricane that's hit southeast Texas in the past 50 years. Their home had only suffered minor damages. Harvey's rains, on the other hand, were a different story. After dams were released on the Neches River, 11 inches of water came into their home. They were picked up by boat and evacuated Rose City, but weren't able to get back into town for several days after the flood. All of our stuff really got ruined. Never in my wildest dreams when I said this could happen to us, but it did. The couple got 13000 from FEMA, but again, they said it was just enough to get started. And again, with no flood insurance, they're also finding it hard to pay for the growing list of repairs needed for their home. Linton says right now they're also waiting to be approved for a loan through the Small Business Administration. The Cowarts tried to live with their son in Tennessee, but wanted to come back home to Texas. People are friendly everywhere you go. We just didn't have the friends, though, like we have here. So we were homesick, and I said, let's go back. And here we are. So this is a pecan pie. Pecan pie, yes. Um, Back at the Methodist Church in Vider, the Mooney family is getting ready to host an early Thanksgiving dinner for their congregation and the community. They're calling it Friendsgiving. I think a lot of people are just going to be going with friends or wherever they happen to be living it's kind of sad, but we're, you know, we're hoping to, to at least help out a little bit with some, some people getting them back in their house by Christmas. Patricia and Linton Cowart are at the dinner, sitting with friends they haven't seen since they returned from Tennessee. Now that they're back, the Cowarts are staying with a local couple. Their son is going to loan them his RV to live in in December, and they imagine that's where they'll be spending their Christmas. Much younger than I am, it wouldn't be so hard, but uh, I don't handle things as well as I used to. I see this ahead of me. I'm not as strong mentally or physically, but we're going to try. That's all we can do. Meanwhile, Pastor Mooney is trying to get his family back into the parsonage by Thanksgiving. And if it's not done then, he's optimistic that eventually, with a little help from friends near and far, they'll get it done soon. For the Texas Standard, I'm Jill Amond. In the Houston neighborhood of Ireland, some houses are sitting vacant and the streets are eerily silent at times. And that too is because of Harvey. Davis Land has that story.
It's seven o'clock. The sun is set. The streetlights are on. Some of the houses are well lit, but it's weird. There are no cars. So we're about to enter the war zone. This is one block away from the bayou. As you can see down there, it's really dark. There's nobody there. That's Lynn Corn. Like a lot of people in Maryland, her house flooded during Harvey. Since then, it's become kind of eerie out here. No one around. So vacant house, vacant house. That's obviously vacant, even though they have a big light on in the front. This one's vacant also. This entire cul-de-sac is, is vacant, I believe. Lynn's out here walking her dog, and she's one of only a few people out on the street tonight. That's kind of unusual, considering Maryland is normally a pretty lively place. At night, it was sort of at dusk, it was really, really busy on the sidewalk. Lots of people are out riding bikes. There's a, there's a gentleman that rides around. He's got a reclining bike, and he's always riding around saying hi to everybody. Kids out playing like basketball. Yeah, yo, yeah, absolutely. We have a remnant of that community left. It's, it's quite a significant change in terms of you see people, and it's it's great to see them. You, they're few and far between, so you're like, well, you're kind of excited to see them. You're like, hey, I know you. That's Gil Melman. Gil and his wife, Samantha, rebuilt their house after the Memorial Day flood in 2015. I mean, I remember it very vividly. We woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning to flood water. We were not prepared or expecting it like our neighbors were. Um, we woke up, and at 3.01, I had already made the decision. <laughs> Didn't tell my wife, but already made the decision that I wasn't going to go through this again, and I was going to um, probably either build or get out. They, of course, chose to build and raise the house about five feet in the process. Gil tells me that anyone who's still in the neighborhood did the same thing. How many of the houses that we can kind of see just from your doorstep do you think uh, are vacant right now? These three right here, and then all of these, if you go every house that is built on grade, so all of the older homes are all vacant. And then you have one that was raised, new construction, raised. So every single house out here that has cars in the driveway, they're all raised houses. That's right. So if you choose to build in the Myerland area rather than just repair or move, you're replacing probably a 60-year-old house on ground level with a new home raised a few feet off the ground. That essentially adds value to the area, so even though Myerland is dark and empty right now, there are good odds it'll be back to its former glory soon. Jocelyn Geit has lived in Myerland for seven years. She says these lulls have become kind of common. I mean, right now it's nothing like it normally is, um, but we've lived through this other flood where I saw it have the same dynamic where everyone disappeared, it got quiet, it looked devastated, but then it came back. Everyone moved back in, we got right back to life. And so I know what this looks like, and I know how it happens, and I can see it's going to happen again. Most people want to go back, <laughs> but we're, we decided not to go back. Jocelyn and her family flooded once before. They rebuilt and didn't think it would happen again. Then Harvey hit. And it just, at that point, I think it hit me that I don't have that much time left in this chapter with our kids home. And I think the idea of building a house and taking another 18 months to two years before we even come back, and then we only have our kids at home for maybe even a couple more years after that, it, it just became really clear that I were not up for that. Right now, Jocelyn and her family are in an apartment, and they plan to move to Montrose. They're in this in-between state that a lot of families flooded by Harvey are in. Jocelyn put it this way, they have all the responsibility of figuring out where to live, but the storm has made the decision for them. In Houston, I'm Davis Land.
Local agencies are spending nearly a million dollars on a new program aimed at getting more people out of their cars and onto bikes or buses. And they're focusing on residents in Austin's inner neighborhoods. KOT's Audrey McGlinchey explains why. I crashed a bus riding party. Um, the main things to know, it tells you on the top the stop ID. So if you use the Cap Metro app, you can type in the stop ID or you can text the stop ID to this number and it'll tell you when the bus is really coming. Lonnie Stern works for Cap Metro, the agency that runs Austin's buses. On Saturday, he led what the agency calls a transit adventure. It's part of a program called Smart Trips. The idea? Get more people living in neighborhoods with good public transit options to ride the bus. To do that, Cap Metro and the city of Austin would lead bike or bus rides. But of course, only to fun places. Saturday's mission, take the bus to parts of the East Austin studio tour. Six people showed up for this trip, four of whom were employees with the city, Cap Metro, or one of their consultants. The other two were a couple, Claudia Perez and Fernando Menendez, who'd driven in from San Marcos, but not really to ride the bus. It looked like fun, and we like art, so. Our adventure begins at Old Torf and South Lamar. We take the 331 bus east, then the 300 north. We get off at Canopy Austin. It's a collection of artist studios open for the weekend show. There, I asked Stern to tell me why Smart Trips is focusing resources on inner neighborhoods, which tend to be among Austin's wealthiest. For the next couple of months, the city and Kent Metro will focus on South Central Austin, neighborhoods like Bolden Creek and Zilker. A lot of times, the places that have the most infrastructure were catering to people who were the wealthiest households. I, I recognize that. but. At the same time, you don't want to set people up for failure. So if you're going to show people it's quick and easy or you can add this into your week, you want to make sure that the infrastructure is there to support them. According to census data, 66% of residents in South Central Austin drive alone to work. A little more than 73% of all Austin residents do the same. Stern says this program is about reminding residents who can afford to own cars that they have other options. The people who live closest to downtown and or work downtown have every reason to be using services that they are not using to the level they could. Michael Walk is a researcher with the Texas A&M Transportation Institute. He says people getting out of their cars may require more than making them aware of other options. The car can be a very, very convenient option, right? Um, leave when you want, go when you want, go where you want without limitations. Really what usually is the defining factor when it comes to the choice a person makes is whether the transit trip is convenient and comparable to taking a car for that trip. As for additional convenience, Cap Metro just approved a major overhaul of its routes, which will go into effect this summer. We'll see if that gets people to make the switch. Audrey McGlinchey, KUT News. Austin's chances of getting a major league soccer team took a hit this week. As KUT's Jimmy Moss reports, the city of Columbus may have come up with a stadium plan that could keep the crew in Ohio. The head of a Columbus philanthropy group says he has a proposal that would put a new 21,000-seat soccer stadium in downtown Columbus. Douglas Kreidler is the CEO of the Columbus Foundation. He says the plan includes $90 million in public funding through a quarter-cent tax hike and would require team owner Anthony Precourt to pay for whatever shortfall the city and the county cannot cover. But not all is lost for Austin soccer fans. There are already skeptics in Ohio. County officials who would have to approve the tax increase say... Any increase would not go to a stadium. Five years ago, the county bought the arena where the Blue Jackets of the National Hockey League play. 
in an effort to maintain hockey's viability there. The plan does push Columbus ahead in this race between cities to meet an owner's demands. Even though the team and Columbus City officials have not weighed in on the plan, it's a starting point. And even just a proposed stadium site and possible financing puts Columbus, at least publicly, ahead of Austin. Jimmy Moss, KUT News. Professor of political science at the University of Texas at Dallas with no government experience might be appointed to the number two position at the U.S. Census Bureau. That's according to people familiar with the situation who spoke with Politico. And that selection is setting off alarm bells for some people. Danny Vinnick is an assistant editor at Politico. Danny, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. So the professor in question is Thomas Brunel. What are some of the concerns about having him be at the number two post at the Census Bureau? The deputy director post at the Census Bureau has never been filled by someone who has a political background. And while Brunel is an academic who's done a lot of work on political science and has studied elections for many years, he's also done a lot of work researching and testifying on behalf of GOP redistricting efforts. So in North Carolina, Iowa, and other states around the country, he's provided support, research, and on sometimes actually testified in person to justify, to defend, to back up those efforts. And Brunel's background really doesn't put him in a typical mold for this position. The deputy director position is generally someone with either experience in the census with statistical agencies, someone who kind of knows how these numbers work and has a background in it, or someone who has experience running a big organization. Because while we don't think of the Census Bureau as a huge agency, when the decennial census comes around, which will happen in a couple years from now for the 2020 census, they have to hire tens of thousands of people and open dozens of field offices. And it's a giant logistical challenge. It's something that you would want, you know, someone who ran FedEx to do, not someone who comes from an academic background who doesn't have a huge management experience. And so for these reasons, there are a lot of raised eyebrows at why he would be chosen for such a critical spot unless there are political reasons involved. What is the role of the Census Bureau in allocating electoral votes for the presidency and determining how many members of Congress each state gets? So the decennial census, which happens every 10 years, uh, the next one's in 2020, is basically a giant count of everyone in the country. So it doesn't matter U.S. citizens and documented immigrants. It counts everyone within the U.S. borders. And then there's a reallocation that goes around effectively that determines an adjustment for how many, which states get certain number of House seats and electoral votes. So so there are huge political stakes involved here and little changes to how you conduct the census, how you word things, where you spend advertising dollars even can really make a big difference in response rates and political representation. Something that got a lot of attention about Professor Thomas Brunel at the University of Texas at Dallas is this book he wrote in 2008, Redistricting and Representation, Why Competitive Elections Are Bad for America. Is there any sense that... uh, Professor Brunel opposes competitive elections. I mean, his is academic research. So this is, you know, the title is provocative and a lot of people have jumped onto this on Twitter who've, who've read our article. But there is, you know, he's conducted real research around this that tries to show that there's actually better representation when you have kind of partisan packed districts and a lot of like-minded voters in one spot uh, versus competitive districts where, you know, there's 60% or 55% from Democrats and 45% Republicans or vice versa. This is a very controversial thesis. There doesn't have a ton of support in the political science world as we tested it off against different 
different professors. They found it more of an outlier. But it isn't, you know, a kind of a kind of partisan hack piece of work. There's legitimate research that he's conducted here to get to this thesis. So what would the optics be if this is made official and uh, University of Texas at Dallas Professor Thomas Brunel is named deputy director of the Census Bureau? It doesn't require Senate confirmation, as you report. How could Democrats react to this? Democrats are going to react probably pretty strongly. There's already been a few House members who've come out after our report today who uh, have criticized and warned the Trump administration not to make this appointment. Uh, as you said, they can't block it in any way. So uh, un- unless they find a way to get Republicans on board with changing the seat to make it Senate confirmable or something like that, they really don't have a ton of power in this position. But you can expect them to be very critical of potentially politicizing an agency that has been nonpartisan or at least attempted to be nonpartisan for its history. Uh, Previous census directors and deputy directors have generally come from the career civil servants. Right now, both spots are vacant. They're temporarily filled by a career civil servant, but there's no permanent positions in there. And so by putting Brunel in the deputy director spot, he would become the highest ranking permanent person at the agency, which would give him a lot of sway and would likely caused quite a reaction from Democrats. Right, because he, he had been considered for the director post, hadn't he? Yeah, our sources tell us that he was floated for it over the summer and that eventually uh, he got some pushback from Capitol Hill. And so they backed off on it. Now they're looking at him as deputy director where they wouldn't have to deal with Congress. All right. Danny Vinnick, assistant editor at Politico, talking to us about their report that the Trump administration is considering appointing a professor of political science at the University of Texas at Dallas with no government experience to the number two post at the U.S. Census Bureau. Danny, great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. weekend for the fourth weekend of November 2017. This commercial-free podcast is brought to you by the fine people who support local nonprofit journalism at KUT. If you're one of those people, thank you for being a member. And if you're not, you're welcome to join them by becoming a member at KUT.org. Just click on the donate button in the upper right. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast at weekend.kut.org. You can email me any questions or comments to Nathan at KUT.org, or you can ask me on Twitter, where I am at KUT Nathan. Our theme music is by RAC. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful day. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 and KUT.org. Thank you.